people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. And if I don't sound like myself, I'm fighting the same cold that's going around to everybody. But trust me, it is me. I am somewhat live, although opinions vary. But the throat is a little weird this week, so bear with me. But I do want to start out with a very important announcement in all seriousness. It's something I've thought about for a long time that I want to share with you and put everybody's concerns to rest. I will not be running for president in 2016. I I know that uh, many of you have emailed me and encouraged me. I just don't see me putting the family through all of that. I know I could win, but I have decided not to run. That was a mildly satirical attempt to comment about Vice President Biden deciding not to run. I find it interesting We had to have a press conference in the White House Rose Garden or whatever it was to make the announcement that he is not doing something. That uh, is always interesting to me. But that does leave us with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And I want to spend a little time not on Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton per se, but on the fact that that side of the equation essentially represents the epitome of socialism. And socialism is the opposite of what America was built on, what we're really about, what we should be about, but it's what they're about. Now, Bernie has come right out and said, I'm a socialist. And give the man credit for being honest about it anyway. He's wrong, but he's honest about it. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, has not come out and said she's a socialist, but everything she says reflects socialist attitudes and philosophy. And that's what I want to touch on a little bit. Later on in the show, you want to stay with us, Jim Harper, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, going to be joining us with some really interesting stuff that Cato is doing. So make sure you stay with us for that. But anyway, back to the socialism Hillary came out in the last uh, last few days with a letter to the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, about investigating the pharmaceutical industry. Now, she essentially caused the biotech sector to crash a week or so ago with comments about drugs and what she feels is wrong with the biotech sector. Now she's taken it up a notch and sent a letter to the FTC demanding a review of the pharmaceutical industry's anti-competitive practices. Now, you know, it, it doesn't bother me that 
she has these opinions about the pharmaceutical industry. What bothers me is she's just an ordinary citizen, no different than you and me right now. Yeah, she's for former first lady. She's former secretary of state. But today, she's just an ordinary American citizen running for president, which anybody can do. How is it that she has the authority to demand, demand anything from the FTC or any other government agency? But be that as it may, she wants to, quote, force drug manufacturers to justify their prices, make sure they add real value, require the largest drug manufacturers to invest a minimum amount in R&D, and a new idea to chew on, let's explore using some of these new research funds to invest directly in producing generic competitors where none exist. Now, of course, uh, she frames that in, it's a win-win for business and consumers. It'll actually encourage more investment and innovation and, and research, not less. Yeah, right. She says biotech companies working on life-saving breakthroughs won't have anything to fear from her plan. But if you're price-gouging American families and jacking up costs for no good reason, I'm going to hold you accountable. Now, think of these statements. Think of the, the arrogance. Think of the, the, the thought of power that she must have to make those statements. It, it's right out of... The, the socialist philosophy of controlling the means of production. She wants to make sure that consumers are getting value for what they're spending. She wants to have manufacturers justify their prices. Now, it starts out as drug manufacturers, but eventually it's all manufacturers, that's the way they control things. They, they want to control the means of product, production, distribution, profits, resources, everything. Now, Bernie Sanders, once again, a little bit more blatant, but his campaign is sending a message to the billionaire class. You can't have it all. You can't take huge tax breaks while children in this country go hungry. You can't continue sending your jobs to China while millions are looking for work. You can't hide your profits in the Cayman Islands and other tax havens while there are massive unmet needs on every corner of this nation. Your greed has got to end. And, and, and to me, that... That, that tells us what the problem is. I tell you, if the Republicans can't beat either of these candidates, uh, we deserve what we get. You can understand why people like Donald Trump are so far ahead in the polls. Now, I don't agree with a lot of what he says. I don't agree with how he says a lot of it. But... At least you got somebody that understands a little bit about capitalism and making a profit. Okay, I, I will I will concede the U.S. economy is not not in good shape right now, but it's not because of the greed of billionaires. It's because 
the U.S. government, through the Federal Reserve System, has created essentially what David Stockman calls a casino economy. This crony capitalism. Now, what does Bernie Sanders uh, propose to revitalize the U.S. economy? Revitalize the economy? Raise taxes on U.S. corporations. That that will revitalize the, the economy. Raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Expand the reach of labor unions and vastly expand their membership. How is that going to revitalize the economy? Make it illegal, illegal for United States corporations to manufacture goods abroad and then sell those goods in the USA. He wants to put a tax on every single financial transaction. Every share of stock you buy needs to have a tax on it. He wants to spend at least a trillion dollars on building and repairing roads, bridges, and utilities. He wants to create a youth jobs program. So the unemployed young people are given government-sponsored jobs. Enact equity pay that will guarantee that women are paid the same as men for comparable work. Break up banks, financial institutions, have a single-payer health care system, free tuition for all public colleges and universities, and expand Social Security benefits. The last one, my favorite, require businesses to provide 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave, at least 10 days of paid vacation a year, and seven days uh, per year of paid guaranteed sick leave. So, I mean, I mean, think about this. I bring all this up, not to pick on Bernie Sanders. I, it's just, it's meaningless to me uh, that it's Bernie Sanders saying this. What's meaningful to me is that so many people are buying into it. The level of ignorance on economics 101 in this country is astounding to me. Absolutely astounding. This is right out of the Marx Communist Manifesto. You're going to control everything. Now, I understand why that's appealing to some people. Some people who have nothing, this makes sense. It, it, it seems logical. The fact that they keep bringing up the 1%, the 1%, the 1%. There is always going to be a 1%. Always. And you can tear down the 1% all you want, and there's still going to be a 1%. There will not ever be everybody at the same level. We are not created the same. We don't have the same abilities. We don't have the same vision, the same desires. But state control of the U.S. economy will do nothing but accelerate the decline of America. It will make us all all poor. Now, we want to look at a, a, a clear-cut example of socialism uh, in our society right now. Right now, I got some great small examples of how the socialist ideology works today. 
I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. So in looking at socialism, there are are classic, classic examples on a micro level. What I'm talking about is in the last several weeks, we've read several stories about different restaurant owners eliminating tips, eliminating tipping. And what they do is they raise prices across the board on their menu, and they guarantee their servers X number of dollars. Now, many people don't associate this with socialism, but it's the same concept, just on a a single business level rather than a city, state, or, or country level. So think about this. We have a restaurant. We have servers. Uh, waiters and waitresses, whatever you want to call them. And different servers have different personalities, different work ethics, different things they do for their patrons that generate tips. You and I have both tipped. We've, we've tipped when we go out, and I, I tip extra if I get special service or someone goes the extra mile for me or is extraordinarily pleasant uh, versus somebody who's, uh, you know, throws food in front of me and is kind of a grouch. Um, but by taking all of that away so everybody earns the same no matter what they do, you have a little taste of socialism. Now, most recently, a gentleman by name of Danny Meyer uh, owns a bunch of high-end restaurants, good restaurants in New York City, has eliminated tips. And he's seen as a, a trailblazer, that kind of stuff. Now, the the other side of this equation is sometimes, sometimes socialism will work at a micro level if... There's enough people on the outside to support it. For example, New York City. I go to New York all the time. A lot of people in New York, six, seven million people there. Um, you have a restaurant there. You you publicize no tipping. Um, you publicize that you're paying your people a, a flat amount or a set amount of salary. You're going to get a certain number of people that will support that restaurant whether it's a good idea or not. Hell, remember a few weeks ago we talked about a restaurant in New York that was serving garbage. They were taking food that was thrown away and making um, uh, meals out of it and selling them, and people knew that it was food that had been thrown away, that it was garbage, that it was whatever, and they sold it and people ate it. So given a big enough diversity in the population, you can get anything supported So it doesn't necessarily give you the true taste. However, the other side of the country, San Francisco, which you would think would be similar to New York uh, as far as progressive liberal thinking goes, socialistic thinking. There are restaurants out there that eliminated tipping, 
raised everybody's wage to at least 15 bucks an hour, that kind of stuff, raised the prices on the menu, and put out there no tipping. And what they're experiencing is a little bit different than in New York. They're having trouble keeping waitstaff. Waitstaff leave. They, 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 they surveyed people in San Francisco, waiters and, or servers in San Francisco, and to, to every person, Every one of them said they wanted to have tips brought back. And you think about it, tipping is no different than what you and I do in the economy every day. We want to provide value. We want to get paid for that value. So servers want to create more value and get higher tips. Some of these servers get the equivalent of $30 an hour when you consider the tips they're receiving. So if you guarantee them $15 an hour and no tips, what's their incentive? Why stay? No matter how nice I am, I don't make any more money. I don't get any more tips. And no matter how grouchy I am, I don't get any less money. So where's the incentive to provide more value? This is a microcosm of socialism. If no matter what I do, I get paid the same, why create extra value? Why work any harder than the guy next to me who gets paid the same as I do and doesn't do what I do? Restaurants in San Francisco are going back to the old method. They're going back to having tips. Lowered the prices on the menus, changed back to the old system because of the turnover. And I'm sure, I'm sure they got comments from the patrons. People like good service. People will pay for good service. So that gives us a might expand that to a country, a nationwide level. And you can see what is likely to happen should they implement those kind of plans. Up next, Jim Harper. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Going to talk about a new program at Cato called Deep Bill. You want to stay with me for that. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Jim Harper. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's a former counsel to committees in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate and author of the book Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Jim, welcome to An Economy of One. Very nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I uh, appreciate you taking the time for us. You know, my producer uh, showed me an article uh, a little while ago, and I said, "Oh, we gotta, we gotta get this guy on." We've talked to a lot of your colleagues at at Cato, but uh, uh, what's what's drew my attention recently is a program you've been working on extensively. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, 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 code named or whether it's uh, what everybody calls it, but it's uh, the Deep Bills Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Deep Bills is the code name for the project, and it is intended to make Americans better able to understand what Congress is doing. 
We take the bills published by Congress. Okay. We, we add data to them. We can go into the details if you want. Mm-hmm. But we add data that makes the bills easier for computers to read. So you can instantaneously gather information about what's going on in the Congress. Do you want to know all the agents, all the agencies that Congress referred to in the bills? Do you want to know where the spending appears in the bills? That kind of thing now can be automatically found so that the public can be better able to fathom what the heck is going on in Washington. Okay, so you take this legislation that is printed somehow and you essentially scan it into this software? Well, we gather, we pull it off of the web. Uh, It's published by the Government Printing Office. Okay. And it's published in a format called XML, which is a commonly... commonly used format. It's, it's, a, it's akin to HTML, which is the language that runs the World Wide Web. Right. Okay. We, take that, we take that bill text and we add more markup to it so that it doesn't just have printing instructions that this should be bold and that should be italicized and this is a new paragraph. We actually add meaning into that code that underlies the printed version of the bill that you see if you go and, if you go and hit print and, and print it out. Um, so then we publish that data out to people. They can use it for any purpose they want. If they want to see uh, every bill that spends over $50 million, they can. If they want to see every bill that affects the Department of Transportation, they can. If they want to see every bill introduced in the last Congress that uh, tried to amend Obamacare one way or the other, they can, and they can do so automatically. Now, it, it, you know, th- this is incredible. Uh, I can't imagine how much time and work uh, you guys have put into this, but... Um in, in doing the research on this, does, does this also tell me, let's say, uh, you know, Senator XYZ votes for a particular bill, does the data tell me uh, what campaign contributions, what lobbyist dollars uh, he got in connection with the, the sector or the companies that are being affected by this bill? Well, that data exists, the data that could show you that. I need someone who's good at coding to take our data mm-hmm. and put that next to the campaign finance data and see how strong those correlations are. It's a it's a wide assumption that people, you know, in industry donate in order to try to get goodies out of Congress. There's sure. a theory that it's actually Congress requiring them to, to donate in order to stop uh, Congress and other politicians from from doing harm to those industries. Right. But uh, but. The data we have can be put together with that data on votes and on campaign finance, and it might help prove or disprove that theory. There are dozens and dozens of different things you could do with this data, and that's one of them. It's a great one to explore. Yeah, that, that's uh, incredible. It is Now, what, what has, uh, I'm kind of giving you a loaded question here, but what has uh, Congress done in response to Cato's deep bill projects? Well, I've, over years now, working on the project, I've spoken regularly with people in the House and Senate, and they are making progress slowly but surely. But especially, I think it's notable that at the beginning of this Congress, uh, the House leadership amended the rules, uh, encouraging the House Administration Committee, the House Clerk's Office, those are the administrative organs of Congress, mm-hmm. to publish more of their documents in these machine-readable formats. So we're kind of trailblazing. We're kind of showing the way. And it's not easy. It's, it is a lot of work, as you said. I've had a, a, a full-timer and a half-timer and lots of poor interns who've had to work on this stuff <laughs> in, order, in order to get this data in. And it is a lot of work. We're really aiming to show Congress the way and to, and to shame them a little bit for not publishing the documents in these formats already. I think they'll do so. 
sometime in the next few years, so it'll be a lot easier for a lot more people to get access to this data. It'll come to you, won't you, you know, ordinary people won't look at the data directly, but it'll come to you through websites, information services, apps on your phone. We'll all be better able to understand all day, every day, exactly what's going on. That's absolutely incredible. I'm talking with Jim Harper, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the man behind Deep Bill's legislative project, perhaps the most illuminating software to keep us informed on the laws Congress is writing. I mean, in doing this, Jim, what, what's what what what's the the primary motivation from from you and and Cato? Is it strictly transparency, or and or is it comprehension uh, of the electorate for what's going on in in uh, these legislative bills? I suppose the motivation is a is a three parter. Okay. Uh, transparency, I think, will lead to a better functioning democracy. People will understand better what's happening, mm-hmm. be smarter voters, be able to contact their members and say something sensible and require a good response while they're in office. And ultimately, though, I think we'll get more libertarian outcomes. Uh, the, the average person, the average voter, uh, wants less government. They want to pay less taxes. They don't know how to to, rec- to get that. They also, some of them, uh, you know, they want their programs, but they don't want to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the public's going to have to sort sort out how that stuff works. But I think overall demand for government will shrink when people know better uh, how the system works and how the levers work. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of what we do at the Cato Institute is simply to advocate against bad government programs. Right. There are plenty. There's plenty of waste. Uh, there's you know uh, plenty of stuff that the government shouldn't be doing. This is a way of actually hopefully using democracy to get to those same outcomes. When voters across the ideological spectrum see how many millions and billions of dollars are wasted, they're going to say, hey, no matter where I am, no matter what party I favor, I don't want that spending. I don't want that program. So we'll get this thing under control. It's it's not going to be tomorrow or next week. Uh, it's a years-long program. But uh, we can bring the kind of change to government that has been brought to the book industry by Amazon and, and, and online sales generally to social media newspapers, everyone's been affected by the Internet, but government, not very much up to this point. Now, do you do, do you see, I mean, will the software, I, I guess, I, I you know, I'm, I'm part of the generation that's a little behind uh, understanding software and the Internet and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm at the tail end of the, the baby boomers, but um, is the software, is the database going to be able to, to give us redundancies? I mean, with with Congress passing, I think I, I read you said uh, 10,000 pieces of legislation in the last year or this last session of Congress or whatever. Um, are we going to be able to see, will the data tell us the redundancies? Uh, we got to have a lot of duplication in our laws with so much legislation out there. Will that will it show us those those duplications? It'll it'll certainly help. Thank goodness I'll correct you slightly. Thank goodness Congress doesn't pass ten thousand laws. Okay. Uh, they, there there are though ten thousand laws introduced in each Congress. So every two years there are about ten thousand okay. bills introduced. Well, that makes of me that, feel a lot better. <laughs> thank goodness of that they <laughs> of that they pass a couple hundred. But those can obviously be huge bills. Okay. Uh, right now the administration is implementing a law called the Data Act, and the Data Act is meant to drive the same kind of of digital transparency into the executive branch, and we should see soon, one hopes and one knocks on wood, 
the same kind of data transparency in the executive branch. So agencies, bureaus, programs, projects, all uniquely identified, exactly what they do, where the money comes from and where it goes, we should get more insight in the next few years, I perhaps speak optimistically, we should get more insight into what all these agencies are doing and how well they're doing it. You'll see there won't be an automatic redundancy button that you hit and find out everything that's redundant. But the society will get a look. Uh, it'll be easier to find out what agencies are doing, what, they're, what all the sub-programs are, where the money's going. And I think redundancy will start, to be, will start to be squeezed out of the system that way. We'll see cost savings and, I think, a shrinkage in government ultimately. Jim, you know, we were promised several years ago that President Obama's uh, administration would be the most transparent in history. Uh, is this going to um, kind of take that that, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, that political rhetoric out of it and force everybody to be uh, transparent, whether they want to or not? Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, President Obama, when he first ran, really said a lot about mm-hmm. good government and transparency. And I think he, he really got hails of applause when he, when he promised things like posting all the bills that came to him online for five days before he signed them. Right. His sunlight before signing promise was his first broken promise in office. Now, I think he and his administration meant to do better than that, and yeah. they put some good effort in in the first couple of years of the administration, but they kind of lost the way. Uh, we've been working, along with people across uh, parties and from on all ideologies, right along, and we've figured out what it takes to make transparent government. I don't think the Obama administration really knew, and we're working assiduously to make that happen. It's going to be data publication. If anything happens in Congress, a federal agency, anywhere in the executive branch, that information should be published in real time in data formats that the Internet can use so that you and I can get a look at it. We can watch along, just like we keep track of our stocks, the weather, sports. The national page of the newspaper should have just as much data as those other sections of the paper. You know, that now that, that brings up an interesting point. Does the... Does the data go into your software? Is it going to be available before bills are are passed, or is this after uh, they're passed and we do the analysis afterwards? Is this a before or after or both? Uh, we have done our right? we have done our best to keep bills marked up as we get them. So when they're introduced in Congress, okay. we start the process of marking them up. Some of them are hundreds of pages long, right. and sometimes Congress will introduce a bill pass it in the House one day, pass it in the Senate the next, and the president will sign it the third day. Uh, we can't get the markup out in time for that kind of situation. Uh, what we're really driving for, though, is change in Congress so that when that bill gets introduced, it's already in a format that we can use. Uh, that means my interns don't have to do that much work, and everybody in the in the country can get access to what the heck is uh, going through Congress right away. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of bur- burned into our brain, uh, Nancy Pelosi, when she was speaker, saying, we got to pass the bill before we know what's in it, or to find out what's in it. That's and, absolutely right. And and Jonathan Gruber, the quote-unquote architect of Obamacare, talked about the stupidity of the American voter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American voter might be kept out of the system by the way it runs right now, but we're not naturally stupid. Right. You, give us the, you give us that data, we'll be able to work with it. People consume really complex data about lots of things in their lives. It seems simple to us because we're so used to it. Once the data is available, and it's digested for us by websites, information services, and apps. Right. We're going to be smart voters, and we're going to keep close tabs on what happens from legislation right on through to spending. Yeah, I mean, you know, Obamacare was 2,300 and some pages. 
uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. Dodd Frank legislation was was a couple thousand pages. It would have been nice to see some some uh, transparency on that beforehand, and uh, maybe motivate some people to call their congressperson and uh, let them know what they think about it. We've heard for years now about the the demand that our legislators should read the bill before it passes. Um, I think that really stands in. Now, the way bills are written in Congress, they're atrocious to read. That's really a stand-in for a desire on the part of the public for not only our legislators but ourselves to understand what's happening and what these what these bills will do before they're passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the system as it is now, you see big, huge pieces of legislation that are hustled through by the leadership of both in both parties right. and the president. That's not the way a democracy is supposed to work. Uh, we have to sort of take the system from them. There, there is support for this among Republicans and Democrats, both in the House and Senate. But to get that kind of institutional change, we've got to be on the outside, uh, hacking through the underbrush and and you know beating this path so that they'll follow along. And that's what we're trying to do with deep bills. We've been talking with Jim Harper. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the driving force behind the development of deep bills technology that makes every bill in Congress machine readable and easy to cross-reference federal agencies and existing laws. Up next, may not be able to get you in the top 1%, but I can get you in the top 75%. I'll tell you how next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Last week, Credit Suisse released its annual global wealth report. And I wanted to touch on a couple points on this because I find it interesting from a couple of standpoints. One, uh, I like numbers. I'm just a numbers guy, especially when there's a decimal point and a dollar sign in, involved. Uh, but also, I wanted to touch on how easy it is to misinterpret the data or skew the narrative around the data. Now, Credit Suisse in their Global Wealth Report, their analysis now shows that the top 1% of people in the world own 50% of the world's wealth. Now, I could spend a week talking to you about uh, how little that matters, that the fact that 1% own more than the bottom 99% is really irrelevant to any of our wealth that you and I own. But I'll skip over that right now. But what was interesting is they were able to skew uh, the research so that it showed or could be interpreted that a large percentage of the world's poor people now live in the United States and Europe. We have more poor people in the United States and Europe than there is in China, according to this interpretation. Now, you got to dig deep into this. you got to dig deep. And the deeper you dig, you find out that it's all based on ratios. Ratios. So Credit Suisse estimates that half of the world has a net worth less than $3,210. Doesn't sound like a lot, does it? Three grand. But a large chunk of Americans and Europeans have a negative net worth. Ready? Ready? 
mainly due to student debt. Okay, now, having a negative net worth does not make you poor. That's a very important aspect to hang on to. Just because you have a negative net worth, just because you have more debt than the value of the assets, doesn't mean you're poor. But they went on to interpret it that if you have no debt and have $10 in your pocket, you have more wealth than 25% of Americans. So 25% of Americans have a negative net worth, according to Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report. Okay, now, the the reason I point this out, one is I think it's oh, mildly funny in an absurd kind of way that if I got 10 bucks in my pocket and no debt, I'm in the top 75%. Uh, certainly doesn't make you in the top 1%, but uh, in the top 75. And it, I find it interesting that they have to throw in student debt. Student debt. I mean, President Obama is talking about forgiving student debt. Uh, Hillary Clinton's talking about getting rid of student debt. Bernie Sanders, of course. Even the Republicans are looking for for ways to ease that burden ease the burden that those people agreed to and got an education, but that's beside the point. But to look at this global wealth report and interpret the negative aspect of this is, once again, illustrative of the fact that most people don't understand basic economics. Granted, I think too many people have too much debt, and the debt oftentimes has been used to buy stuff that is not really necessary in life and really doesn't contribute to building their wealth. In fact, I would go on to say that most people aren't too conscious of building their wealth as much as they are conscious of feeling good or enjoying the day today without worrying about the consequences of tomorrow. And I think that's wrong. But I got no problem with people having debt. I got no problem with negative net worth. We've all been there. We've all been through those cycles, and it's a step on the way to building wealth. But I find it interesting that these reports come out, and they use it to slam America. They end the statement with, it becomes really hard to make the case that you're still in the richest country in the world. Let me help you. We're in the richest country in the world the greatest country in the world, the best country in the world. I don't want to be anywhere else ever, ever, ever. Do we have our problems? Yeah. Are we going to get through them? Absolutely. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 